Steve, if you would go ahead and make your way up here. You can hook up uh, uh, your microphone while I introduce you. Our speaker today is, uh, and throughout the conference on the topic of uh, the, is the Hebrew Old Testament Messianic is Steve Gurr. I first became aware of him. I've been podcasting the Dallas Seminary Chapel messages for uh, several years, and I heard him speak at chapel. I uh, heard him speak at chapel some years ago, and then he's also written a commentary in that series that Ed Heinsohn and Mal Couch did on uh, his commentaries on Acts. I've recommended that to a number of you. You've responded that you're glad that you had that recommendation. I think several others. I know Dan. Dan's the one who recommended it to me to begin with, and um, Clay and others have used it. It's it's uh, really very, very well done, and I appreciate his uh, his work so very much. He is a... I haven't looked at it. Uh, unlike some people, I try not to recommend things I have not read. I learned that years ago the hard way. He is uh, currently serving as a senior pastor at the Messianic Congregation Beth Sar Shalom in Plano, Texas, and he is the founder and director of Sojourner Ministries. That's because his name, Gur, is the Hebrew word for sojourn. He's the traveler. So he is here, and he is um, uh, also has a number of other books and contributed to Popular Bible Prophecy Commentary and uh, has an audio book on, from the Ten Commandments to Gods and Kings, the Moses that Hollywood forgot. You, are you aware of that film that's coming out this week? Yeah, on, this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to take some people. We're going to go Thursday night. Yeah, so. that's great. That's one, yeah. yeah, that's going to be good. Okay. Um, you can ask me about that later. Anyway... Uh, Steve is here, and I'm not going to spend any more time. Let him take over and uh, begin his uh, six sessions with us going through this incredibly significant, important material on determining whether or not the Old Testament is really messianic. All right, thank you. Please don't stand up. How about now? Oh, yeah. So I am the uh, director of Sojourner Ministries. And Sojourner Ministries, of course, I'm a, I'm a Jewish believer. I'm a fourth-generation Jewish believer. Uh, so I know that some people are, are curious about what I mean when I say fourth-generation Jewish believer. So let me simply explain this and get out of the way. Uh, Almost 100 years ago, my great-grandmother, uh, or yeah, my great-grandmother, uh, Helen Kozer, found her Messiah in the Holy Land. That's Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> and she passed down her faith to her daughter, my grandmother, who passed down her faith to... Her daughter, my mother, who passed down her faith to me. That's the fourth generation Jewish person uh, in my family, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the first male. My son now is fifth generation Jewish believer. That's actually it's fairly rare, but getting less rare as 
more of us are doing that which the Bible calls us to do, which is to share the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So when I talk about Sojourner Ministries, yeah, that's my name, so yeah, I'm the wandering Jew, if that helps you to remember. Um, Our purpose is to explore the Jewish heart of Christianity. And when I say the Jewish heart of Christianity, that's what Sojourner Ministries is all about, Jewish heart of Christianity. What is the Jewish heart of Christianity? The Jewish heart of Christianity is not a what. It's a whom. Jesus is the Jewish heart of our faith. Jesus is Jewish, born of a Jewish mother, circumcised in the eighth day, lived and died within a Jewish cultural context, fulfiller of messianic prophecies that are revealed in the Hebrew Bible. So, When we ask the question, which I'm here to answer, does the Hebrew Bible prophesy the Messiah? I can tell you without any equivocation, the answer is yes. Thank you, everyone. I'm saving you five and a half sessions. (laughs) Our first session regards the importance of messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, why does messianic prophecy matter? Why messianic prophecy matters? See, that's a great theme that flows from one extremity of the Hebrew Scriptures to the other. From Genesis to the Italian prophet, Malachi. And that is of messianic promise. The messianic hope has left an indelible impression on the Jewish people throughout their history. And in particular over the past 2,000 years. There is an excellent book that I want to recommend to you by a friend of mine, somebody I literally I grew up with, um, Dr. Michael Rodelnik who is the head of the uh, Jewish Studies Department at Moody, wrote a wonderful book called The Messianic Hope. It's the best book on the topic. And while we don't um, agree 100%, um, the 1% or 2% on which we uh, differ um, is nonetheless uh, uh, not worth discussing, really. Uh, And it's a particularly wonderful book because it is dedicated to my great aunt, Hilda Kozer, uh, who led Michael in the 70s when we were both children. He's a little older than I am. Uh, led Michael to the Lord, his mother first, and then him when he came to argue uh, about what uh, my aunt had done to his mother, uh, and led him to the Lord. And how did she lead him to the Lord? Hilda Kozer, my great aunt, led Michael Rodelnik to the Lord using messianic prophecy. She led thousands of my people, of our people, to the Lord using messianic prophecy. There are many today in our institutions, in our, uh, in our uh, educational spires of learning that want to minimize 
the importance of Messianic prophecy. One, two, yeah, there we go. Yeah. I guess what that demonstrates to all of us is that I have independently uh, minded hips. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but there are, there are many who would, uh, who would say, oh, there's, there's really no messianic prophecy per se in the Hebrew Bible. Um, these prophecies, quote unquote, are really only discovered after the fact uh, as Jesus lived his life, died, was resurrected, and then the Hebrew Bible was combed and, uh, and sorted through to find corresponding passages which can then be uh, called messianic prophecy. But however, these are not actual predictions of the Messiah that the Jewish people before the time of our Messiah, before the time of Jesus' arrival, could have ever anticipated someone like our Messiah. Um, that is not what we're going to, uh, that's not our perspective, that's not our view, right? The messianic hope has been a plaintive cry of the Jewish people throughout their history for King Messiah to arrive. That's not something the Jewish people invented once the temple was destroyed, the second temple. This is a theme that permeates the entirety of the Hebrew Bible, beginning in Genesis 3, which we'll talk about later today. It's a heartfelt cry, and the eventual return, the hope for the eventual return of the Messiah to his holy city in Jerusalem to restore Israel to its place as promised by the covenants. The plea of the Jewish people for God-sent deliverer to ease the national pain, to relieve their suffering, to restore justice to a morally and ethically upside-down world, to once again restore the Jewish people to their homeland, to grant peace, to security, to grant security, to punish evildoers, to answer all the unanswered questions that have accumulated over their history, famously awaits fulfillment. Only when Messiah comes. What we want to discuss over six sessions is that he has come. He has come. And it can be demonstrated and anticipated from the scripture. So why Messianic prophecy matters? The first reason is the centrality of Messianic prophecy. And we're going to spend some time here. The centrality of Messianic prophecy to the new Testament. Messianic prophecy is a fundamental area of study for the committed student of Scripture. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. Jesus made his entry into human history when the Jewish community's messianic expectations were already vigorous and messianic concepts were robust Roman occupation of Israel following immediately upon a century of self-government 
under the Hellenized Hasmonean priest kings of Hanukkah fame, by the way, uh, had galvanized the Jewish imagination. And at the time Jesus entered into human history, the messianic flame blazed brightly among the Jewish people. It wasn't a later invention. It was something that had been stoked for previous centuries. And it is only within this theological, historical, sociological, and cultural context that one can fully appreciate the New Testament accounts of Jesus' entrance onto the Messianic stage. In other words, if you do not understand the Messianic prophecies that are contained within the Hebrew Bible, of which there are far more that we're going to be, than we're going to be able to cover uh, in any depth uh, during our time together during this conference. But if you do not understand them, if you don't have a grasp of these prophecies, this expectation, I can say categorically that you cannot fully appreciate who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Testimony of the New Testament is vividly clear over and over again that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish messianic expectation and then some. Although he shattered the, con the confines of pre-existing descriptive categories that rabbis had come up with, the Messiah whom God sent to his people turned out to be a much more spectacular spectacular figure than anyone had previously imagined. Indeed, there was a great deal of confusion in the New Testament era over exactly how the numerous and the varied messianic prophecies that are studied through the Hebrew Bible, how did they correlate together? Yet time and again throughout the New Testament, it is messianic prophecy that becomes the razor-sharp instrument through which the gospel is both proclaimed and explained. For example, Jesus, Luke 24, And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. It doesn't say, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the rabbis have spoken. It doesn't say that, O oh, foolish men and slow of heart, to believe a couple of verses that the prophets have spoken. You know, when I first got to Dallas Seminary in the fall of 1988, um, the seminary Hebrew department was replete, was filled with professors who rejected numerous messianic prophecies that I not only grew up with, but I know that we had led people to fate with and demonstrating. And my aunt would demonstrate, you know, speaking Yiddish and showing, uh, uh, and showing these prophecies in the Hebrew text. But nonetheless, I had a professor who I'm now very close with uh, and uh, teaching OTI. And I was flabbergasted, flummoxed, as a Jewish believer coming into Introduction to Old Testament when I was told that there were probably only uh, six really uh, predictive prophecies of the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible, to which I raised my hand 
and said, I find it rather remarkable, professor, with so few uh, messianic prophecies in the Hebrew Bible, how any Jewish people have ever come to faith at all. Uh, Because that was, again, the primary means, albeit through the Holy Spirit, the tool that we used uh, for the past century. That's how my family came to faith. My great-grandmother came, this is the... Uh, just after the turn of the century as an immigrant, a new immigrant with six children. She came to a medical dispensary that was, uh, that was administrated by the uh, American Board of Missions to the Jews. And she needed some assistance. It's a new immigrant with a big family. And so medical and English lessons. And, and along with the help in the storefront uh, region, they also offered classes in Yiddish, Bible classes about the Jewish Messiah. That's how my great-grandmother, Helen Kozer, came to faith. And it was through that one moment in time that an entire family, the destiny of an entire family was changed. Messianic prophecy. It matters. So, uh, again... Oh, foolish men's love, hard to believe in all, not some, not a few things, not six things, like I learned in uh, DTS at six uh, uh, in uh, 1988. <laughs> the professor has come around uh, and, and has a, a lar- much larger uh, uh, width, breadth of understanding of uh, Messianic prophecy today. Very interesting. Uh, but uh, was it not necessary for the Christ, for Mashiach, to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then... Beginning with Moses, and again, not some of the prophets, not a prophet, not a few of the prophets, but Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them the things concerning himself in, here's that word again, all. It's a pesky word when you see the term all. It's such a, I don't know, comprehensive type word, Um, and it keeps showing up. Right, And we'll see through the rest of the verses that we're going to look at, from Jesus to Peter to uh, Philip to, to, to Paul, we keep seeing uh, that all the prophets have spoken. So beginning with Moses and all the prophets, now according to uh, some people, some professors, uh, this was a very short conversation. Right, It's a five-minute conversation, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Boom, we're done with everything that they had to say about the Messiah. But it was a nice walk that they had. Uh, and he explained to them all the things. So let's keep going. Now he said to them, this is 24, 44 through 46. He said to his disciples, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That pesky word, that all things which are written about me, not which can be somehow applied to me after the fact, but that are written about me in the law of Moses, in Torah, in other words, and the prophets and the Psalms, another way of saying the writings, Jewish uh, scripture, Hebrew scripture is divided into Torah and prophets and, uh, and the writings. In other words, everything must be fulfilled. Everything, all must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. If only Jesus could have done the same, uh, the same trick to every seminary student and professor uh, 
this would be a very interesting conference. But he opened his disciples' minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. We move now from Luke to John. I believe in full gospel representations. Uh, but he says in John, two Jewish leaders, to those who know the Scriptures, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So, it's always an interesting thing to answer the question, Moses, how did he write about Messiah? Was it just a couple of actual things? that, Or is Messiah actually, does he appear in various other places aside from the ones that we would identify? Those of us who would identify Messianic prophecy as, as, as direct or predictable, uh, are there other places? And I think the answer, if we think about John, we think, remember when Jesus says in chapter 8 of John, before Abraham was, I am. In that one little verse, in that one statement, okay, eroimi in Greek, eshaya in Hebrew, in that one statement, he identifies himself as the, as the one who spoke to Moses through the burning bush, chapter 3. He identifies himself as the one who ate with Moses and the elders and Aaron and his two sons in Exodus, midway up Mount Sinai. The one who appeared to Moses when Moses said, well, I'm enjoying Panim el Panim, our relationship is very, very nice as far as it goes. But I would really like to see your glory dialed up a couple of notches, you know. Can you crank it up? You know, and the Lord, of course, yeah, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. You know, it's not in the original Hebrew like this. But uh, the Lord says, hey, you know what? If I dialed it up, you couldn't handle You can't handle You can't handle my glory, right? Because uh, by default, the default switch on my glory is 11. Uh, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to appear. I'm going to take you. I'm going to place you. I'm somehow going to physically move you into the cleft of a rock. I will cover you with my hand. See, I always thought, and this is what Jewish people teach, that really what this passage is all about is, well, somehow, you know, the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory is showing up, and you've got like kind of this glowing cloud, like the Metrons and Star Trek, you know, glowing, glowy cloud. Thanks for those of you who, you know, the original series I'm talking about. Uh, uh, but, you know, this is, this is not what we're, that's not what's pictured here. A hand covers Moses, so to block Messiah when he, well, God when he comes. Uh, and so then the hand is taken away. So it has to be an awfully big hand. Right? It's taken away so that Moses can see the wake of God. I believe what we're talking about is the second person of the Trinity. Right? There is a lot in that Eho Imi, Yeshua that 
Jesus is saying in John when he talks about Moses spoke of me. Obviously, we're not talking about Messiah. We're not talking about uh, incarnation. We're talking about second person of the Trinity. That's who Moses is encountering. Well, But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? These guys were defined by their belief in Moses' writings. And in fact, that was one of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees could agree on. They all believed in Moses' writings. And Jesus is saying, you don't know, first of all, what you don't know. Second of all, you're mistaken. Brethren, this is Peter. We move from Jesus to Peter. Brethren, Pentecost sermon, temple courts. I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us today. We visit him uh, and we celebrate his, or we commemorate his death on Pentecost. And so because David, he, was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, identifying thereby the Davidic covenant as messianic prophecy, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, and using now Psalm 16, saying that is messianic prophecy, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay, um, thereby using, again, Psalm 16, plus the Davidic covenant, which we'll talk about this week, and saying that is messianic prophecy. It is foundational to understanding the Messiah, and that should have been the Jewish expectation. How do you think that Peter, after preaching, interrupting the festivities, got three thousand Jewish worshipers to respond positively to the Messiah. How did he do it in the next chapter when another 5,000? How did so many priests and Jewish people come to faith? Peter used messianic prophecy. Chapter 3. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of, here's that word, say it with me, all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Going on in the same message, again, in the temple courts, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Identifying Deuteronomy chapter 18 as messianic prophecy, which was anticipated because the Jewish people, you see throughout the Gospels, they anticipate the prophet like Moses to occur. It was just unclear what his relationship was to the Messiah. Likewise, Paul cont Peter continues, all the prophets who have spoken, there's that pesky word, from Samuel and his successors onward, also announced these days. What days? The days of Mashiach. The days of Messiah. Peter writing, it's interesting to see, well, Peter, this is how he used Messianic prophecy in a, uh, in, a, in a live message in the temple courts. Sometimes you get a slightly different perspective when you see what someone has uh, in their writing, in their letters. 
And this is Peter, 1 Peter 1. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So again, this is talking about all the prophets. These are the prophets he referred to earlier on. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you in the days of Messiah made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So what Peter is saying is that the prophets, those from Moses and Samuel all the way through, they knew they were prophesying of the Messiah. It wasn't something that they had a question about the topic. They were prophesying about a future deliverer. They just weren't sure what kind of fellow, when he would come into history, who is he? Where is he coming into history? At what point in time is he arriving? So the person or time. And in fact, the Messianic prophecies, they come, according to Peter, they come directly from Christ himself, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Christ, the Holy Spirit, is communicating to them the Messianic prophecies. It was revealed to them, he goes on to say, that they were not serving themselves no, but they, they weren't speaking to their own time and to the people of their own time. They were recording something for posterity. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves. They were serving a future generation. You, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We move from Peter, Jesus, Peter, now we go to Stephen. Which one of the prophets, this is his defense before the Sanhedrin, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced. Those are the prophets, Moses, Samuel, and all the prophets. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Messiah, who is betrayers and murderers you have now become. We move from that didn't land uh, very uh, pleasantly uh, in his audience, and he paid the price, the ultimate price. We move to now Philip. Philip opened his... Remember the story? Philip is running alongside the Ethiopian. The Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 53. Uh, and, and Philip says, you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone teach me? Come on up. It's an invitation to come up. And Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from his from the scripture. Not just this. Isaiah 53 is one of those passages that is indisputably direct prophecy. Everybody, just about everybody would uh, agree about that. If there's one messianic prophecy that everybody would agree on, uh, that and Micah 5 too. Uh, but Philip opens about beginning from this scripture. It was a long ride. Who knows how long the ride took? He preached Jesus to him. How about Paul? For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. So, in other words, the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, reveal Messiah. And then in 17, according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence. It took him three weeks. He didn't repeat the same message every week. It's enough passages to go around. And Shabbat 
services, Shabbat messages. They're a lot lengthier than most of our church services, right? So, uh, <laughs> you know, they weren't waiting for a, a, a Cowboys game afterwards or anything like that, right? They weren't worried about that. So for three Sabbaths, they reasoned them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I'm proclaiming to you is Messiah, is the Christ, right? So the evidence is there. Now, how about Apollos? Don't forget about him. He's a good fellow too. And when... <laughs> Apollo said it right. He greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jewish people in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. The only scriptures he could have demonstrated from, the only scriptures that existed, the Hebrew scriptures. So there must have been enough evidence in those scriptures to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So we've seen the centrality of the New Testament. What time do we need to stop, Rabbi? Okay, about the 30-minute mark. Great, thank you very much. It's 4 o'clock. <laughs> I'll tell the jokes, pal. Um, the, <laughs> the second point is the, <laughs> the centrality of Messianic prophecy to Judaism. What was the Jewish expectation of the Messiah? Uh, we talk about there was expectation. It's obvious in the Gospels that there is an existing expectation. What was the Jewish expectation of the Messiah in the first century in Second Temple Judaism? Right, Contrary to what many understand throughout Jewish history, there has always been messianic expectation and not just one monolithic messianic there's been a variety you get a whole variety pack of messianic expectation in particular at the time of jesus the period of second temple judaism no monolithic perception concerning the coming messiah the messianic ideal in the first century was by no means static and was very much still in development the anticipated messianic figures expected at the day, run the gamut from king to priest to prophet and back again and include multiple combinations of the three, like three Legos that you try to combine in different uh, uh, configurations. And within the state of flux, the scope of messianic expectation stretched over a broad range of possibilities. Let's talk about them. There existed, first of all, the uh, portrait of Messiah as the idealized Davidic king who would be God's conquering warrior would vanquish nations, establish, establish the primacy of Israel. Uh, there was, uh, on the other hand, a portrait of Messiah as the ultimate priestly leader who would die on behalf of his people. Uh, one was much more popular than the other. Um, there was an imaginative dual rendering of two separate but related messiahs, one messiah, one messiah, two messiahs. Uh, you had Messiah Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah ben Joseph, who is destined to die, and the other, Mashiach ben David, is destined to conquer. Then there was the mysterious and enigmatic superhuman figure, mystically elevated to a semi-divine status. And finally, there's even indication in some certain limited circles that there was no specific messianic hope at all. Indeed, Judaism as a faith system during the time of Jesus existed not as one mighty current of doctrine and belief, but diverse faith streams dependent upon the influence and authority of various different sects, parties, rabbis, and traditions. Uh, it is uh, very accurate not to speak of a single Judaism, but various Judaisms at the time of Jesus. And these faith streams 
within Judaism. They do converge with the emergent dominance of Pharisaic rabbinic Judaism. And that happens by the beginning of the second century A.D. Following the obliteration of all other Jewish sects, if you think about it, after the temple is destroyed, you have uh, no more Essenes. The Romans wiped them out. Uh, you have no, no more Herodians. There's no more Herods. Uh, you have uh, no more Sadducees. The power base in the temple is destroyed. No more zealots. They were killed in the revolution. You have only the Pharisees, the remaining Jewish sect standing. Well, one other Jewish sect, Messianic Jewish believers. Um, So the Jewish Christians, right? So as a result of the Roman destruction of the temple in 70 AD, Pharisaic rabbinic Judaism quickly evolved into mainstream, normative Judaism. The process of redefining the essentials of Jewish faith within a post-temple world began in earnest. And this included the compelling, recording, and formalizing, compiling, recording, and formalizing of rabbinic oral traditions into the vast corpus of literature that we know as the Talmud. Judaism that had uh, successfully transitioned from a Levitically oriented to a rabbinically oriented faith system within a few centuries, found itself devolving yet again into a fractured, diverse set of parties and faith, faith traditions and sects and propositions and beliefs. As the old expression goes, you may not have heard this, two Jews, three opinions. Uh, <laughs> contemporary Judaism... I view as the poster child of religions in its ability to illustrate the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy. Center doesn't hold. Today, 2,000 years after the visitation of their Messiah, Jesus, to Israel, the subsequent destruction of the temple, Judaism finds itself more fractured and divided than ever, and no more is this clearly uh, more is this, uh, clearly illustrated than the diversity of messianic expectation of the Jewish people. Even so, self-correcting measures have occasionally been attempted. The great 12th century philosopher Rabbi uh, Maimonides, Moses ben Maimon, attempting to unify all Jews around uh, what were uh, commonly considered the essentials of faith, compiled a formal 13-point Jewish doctrinal statement in his voluminous opus of Jewish traditions and practices called the Mishnah Torah. These 13 principles are still recited daily in the traditional synagogue service. The 12th article of the 13, these principles, recognizes the foundational nature of the Messianic hope, stating, I believe with perfect faith in the coming of the Messiah, and though he tarries, I will wait daily for his coming. Although it's only today, uh, today's Orthodox Jewish practitioners who still faithfully recite this affirmation, the somewhat diminished messianic flame still flickers, however dimly, through a glass, however darkly, throughout the remainder of Jewry. It's not easy to quench the concepts that are rooted so thoroughly within the warp and woof of the Hebrew Bible and entrenched so deeply within the Jewish imagination. See the uh, quote from Maimonides here. And as uh, the author of, uh, I'm not quoting from this particular book, uh, you may have heard of it, Kosher Sex, uh, Shmuley Boteach, the rabbi, in this book, Wolf, The Wolf Shall Lie Down with the Lamb, Messiah in Hasidic Thought, 
Belief in the Messiah is more central to Judaism than even the observance of Shabbat or Yom Kippur, uh, the cardinal principle of Jewish faith. We move now to point three, evangelistic purpose. Without question, as we've demonstrated already, the foundation of the evangelism of the New Testament era was messianic prophecy. And you know what they say, if it ain't broke, right, don't fix it. The ability of Jesus, the ability of Jesus to fulfill these prophecies either makes or breaks his messiahship. I think that's indisputable. It's inarguable. You ignore Jesus' messianic fulfillment of prophecies at one's own spiritual peril. And the fourth point, faith affirming. Messianic prophecy was an extremely critical component in my personal faith walk as a teen and college student. I used to read tracts and booklets. You may have seen them, uh, bookmarks and all kinds of things, some of which were stupefying and some of which were less compelling. But uh, um, this was very popular when I was uh, younger. You know, you'd get a bookmark, you know, three. 100, 3,000, I don't know what it was, you know, prophecies, direct prophecies uh, uh, that the Messiah fulfilled. Well, not exactly. I don't believe that there are hundreds of direct prophecies, hundreds and hundreds of direct prophecies in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible concerning the coming Messiah. Right? However, I do believe that there are at least two dozen dazzling unequivocal, literal, messianic prophecies to be expounded upon in depth and a roughly another two dozen typological, applicational, correspondence or summation messianic prophecies that can be enjoyed for the purpose of building up our own faith. So it's not a numbers game because honestly, If all we had was Isaiah 53, and we have a whole lot more than that, if all we had was Isaiah 53, that would be enough to demonstrate. But we have dozens of literal prophecies and dozens more of applicational, typological, and uh, analogical prophecies. And if the first advent prophecies of the Messiah were literally fulfilled, we can be fully confident in our faith and informed that every one of the second Advent prophecies will likewise be literally fulfilled. Well, let's move to definition of the Messiah. Messiah is, as you know, transliteration of the Hebrew word Mashiach. It means anointed one. What's the Greek word that means exactly the same thing? Christos, Christ, right? In the Hebrew scripture, Messiah generally signifies one who upon assumption of a sacred office is specially consecrated, set apart for God by anointing with oil. This was performed, for example, upon the installation of prophets, priests, and kings, right? And not just a little dabble, do you, of the oil that you get in some churches today. You know, here, we're going to anoint you for prayer. No, this was poured out oil, right? Um, You didn't have to worry about conditioner for weeks. Um, And over time... This came to be applied to an idealized representative uh, prophet, priest, king figure. That's the definition here. An ultimate Aaron, an ultimate Moses, and uh, an ultimate David, prophet, priest, and king. This redemptive figure developed within Israel's collective consciousness alongside an accompanying idealized age of peace 
and prosperity. These messianic ideas freely percolated throughout the era of united kingdom, divided kingdom, exile, diaspora, return, and gained momentum under the Hasmonean dynasty and heated the imagination of the Jewish populace under the Roman domination until finally Israel began erupting with one charismatic figure's messianic claims after another. Jesus is one of many messianic figures in Jewish history, the only one who did what he said he was going to do, rise from the dead. Three days. Four facets of messianic prophecy. First advent exclusive. So prophecies that speak only of Messiah's first advent. Second advent exclusive. Prophecies that speak only of Messiah's return. So we have suffering human Messiah, priestly imagery. Uh, on the first advent, we have conquering, returning king uh, with establishing Israel as the center of uh, the nations, the head of the nations. Rule. You have some prophecies that go one way, some prophecies that go the other way. Then you have some prophecies that combine both first and second advent. You have... A Messiah who will suffer, who will come, and a Messiah who will die, and then somehow will live and rule. It's a combination. And then you have, this is more rare, what I call the full messianic res- resume, uh, or the full gospel uh, real deal. Uh, and this would be like uh, Psalm 110 which speaks of the first advent and also speaks of the interim period when Messiah is, uh, is uh, serving as a Melchizedekian priest, intervening on our behalf, interceding on our behalf, his return as king and eternal state, on the eternal state. So you have four facets of Messianic prophecy, and they shine like facets of a diamond. And then you have... Uh, Oh, you, you've, seen, you've seen this imagery, right? Sometimes, and this is where the Jewish confusion was, because prophecy often like a mountain range, and I'm looking at a two-dimensional mountain range here, and I see I have no idea how close those peaks are in the back to the ones in the front. They just look like two dimensions. I can't see the distance. Is it, is it five minutes? Is it 500 years? Is it five... Th- I can't tell. So this explains a lot of the confusion that was going on particularly between the first and second advent prophecies. All right. Now, types of messianic prophecy. Types of messianic prophecy. There are four types. The first, the easiest to grasp, literal. When we talk about literal fulfillment, we're thinking the concept of, you know, crystal ball gazing. You know, I, I see this. And it will be fulfilled just as was seen. So a literal prophecy that anticipates a literal fulfillment. Then you have, so again, when we think of Messianic prophecy, don't limit yourself to just literal fulfillments. Okay? There are plenty of those, but there are also typological fulfillments. Like, for example, um, Isaac provides a tremendous picture. When we talk about types, prophetic, that's prophetic type, not pathetic type. Um, Isaac, when he is almost sacrificed on Mount Moriah, 
the father willing to sacrifice his unique son, son of promise. It's a picture of the Messiah. The father who was not only willing to sacrifice his son, but who went through with it. Uh, when we think about uh, pictures, think also of like how the life of Joseph reveals um, a, a picture of the Messiah. He was rejected by his own, uh, and it was only upon their second encounter with him that they recognized him as their deliverer. Uh, Moses is another great picture. Um, when he first appears on the scene to deliver his people, they say to him, let me kill the Egyptian, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Okay, skip forward a couple of chapters, and it's very clear that they accept that God had made him a rule. So rejected at first, accepted upon second view okay? um, as their deliverer. A beautiful picture of the Messiah. Then we have applicational. An applicational is kind of a, it's somewhat tricky to wrap your uh, head around an application. When, for example, um, Matthew takes Hosea out of Egypt, I've called my son. It's very clear in context. That is not a direct prophecy. It's speaking of Israel. So, but Matthew is saying it is fulfilled in Jesus out of Egypt. I've called my son. Right. So he is applying that which was true about Israel. It's not a direct prophecy, but he's applying what was true about Israel to Jesus, thereby identifying Jesus as the ultimate Israel. And we see that it's one of the themes that you'll see in the New Testament as Jesus um, reiterating Israel's history in his own life. And then you have what I would call some, some like Michael uh, uses as the fourth kind. He says summation. He calls this one summation. Um, I don't accept that terminology exactly because I think it's very difficult. He would use the example, for example, that uh, uh, Matthew says that uh, he shall be called a Nazarene. There's no place in the Hebrew Bible where it says that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Um, he would simply say that, well, it's a summary. Matthew is saying, well, it says that the Messiah will re- be rejected. He'll be dejected, rejected. He won't be thought of very much. Uh, and that's exactly what they thought of Nazareth, um, that it was not uh, important. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so he's summarizing various different uh, prophecies and saying and applying them that way. Um, Maybe okay, so you can use that as a as a as a category if you like for the fourth category. Um, another word I would use maybe is synthetic, and taking this passage, this passage, this passage, and synthesizing them into a point. I think that's kind of hard to do. Um, I find it much easier to have as a fourth category what I call analogical or correspondence. In other words, as the good book says. Right? So just as the Bible says, Psalm 69 actually I think is a terrific, uh, a terrific example of this because you have several different little one-liners that the New Testament uses from Psalm 69. It's, it's an imprecatory psalm. 
right? So it's not a direct prophecy. So how does it actually apply to Jesus, right? Um, This is done to fulfill what was written. They hated me without a cause, right? It's an analogy. This corresponds to this. Uh, Another great example would be like Acts 4, where the apostles are are saying the, the, the rulers of this world have conspired against, and this would be... Um, this would be uh, an example they're using and say applying them to the Sanhedrin, right? Definitely, the original passage is not talking about the Sanhedrin conspiring against God and his people. But nonetheless, um, they say this is like, this is an analogy, this corresponds. So those are the four different types. Hermeneutics, I, Herman who? Uh, I don't have to go through this with you, right? Right? It's common sense, grammatical, historical, rhetorical, uh, and that is the way in which we're reading scripture. If we're reading scripture other ways, then you can make prophecies out of mountains, out of molehills, and minimize, maximize whatever you want. This is the way to approach it, okay? Common sense, as, approach, as uh, opposed, by the way, to the rabbis who start with this. The rabbinic hermeneutic begins with this, but then adds a whole mess of creativity. Um, and, and, and so their approach is take a scripture, no matter how obscure, apply it to a major theological truth and theme on the basis of whatever tenuous connections. It sounds, a syllable sounds the same. Uh, one word corresponds to this or that. Um, so we don't want to be like them. Okay, we want to be uh, uh, like we are, right? Like everybody in this room, okay? Taking the grammatical, historical, rhetorical, i.e., common sense approach to the scriptures, right? Okay, that's how it's going to be. Keep your unleashed creativity for um, the opening joke uh, of your sermon, okay? Uh, and the closing poem. Um, Philip ran up, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, said, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian said, How can I unless someone guides me? And Philip came up and he sat with him. You want to interpret the scripture as the New Testament did, as the apostles, as the authors and the, uh, the, the figures in the New Testament did. All right. Uh, we have probably a minute for questions. Okay. Questions? Questions? Yes? No? Okay. I have to tell you that regarding questions, and every session is going to ask end, end with questions, the first question is very, very hard. Everybody's embarrassed. So if you don't mind, Robbie, do you think it would be okay if we dispense with the first question completely? Yeah. All right. Good. Fantastic. Good. Okay. Good. Outstanding. Thank you. Okay, anybody here over here have any questions? This would be the second question of the day. Okay, good. <laughs> Dr. Gare, could you talk about a little bit about the um, um, Masoretic, Masoretic obscuration of uh, Messianic prophecy? That yeah, you know, and we'll... we'll we're not going to have a lot of time to go into that. I mean, one, one for example, would be Psalm 22, um, where there is a, uh, it's a very 
uh, interesting thing between Ka'ari and Ka'aru. Uh, they pierced my hands and my feet, which a lot of manuscripts have. Septuagint has, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, so you have Ka'ari, uh, and then you have in the Masoretic text, you have Ka'ari. So the problem, as you know, with, uh, with texts is that sometimes there are purposeful and sometimes there are unpurposeful, so just accidental uh, corruptions of some sort, which is why you do textual criticism and you look and you see. Um, um, but when you're reading, like for example, the Jewish Publication Society, um, their uh, Tanakh, their Hebrew Bible, every time there is a variant reading um, that takes you away from messianic prophecy, they will use it, right? So is, is Psalm 22, which is about the crucifixion, direct prophecy, we'll talk about, uh, they pierced my hands and my feet. Does that make more sense in the context of the, or, or like a lion, my hands and my feet? Right, and it comes down to it comes down to vowels, right? And vowels are ka'ari, ka'aru. The consonants are the same, right? So what is it going to be? Uh, it's like uh, say chim chim churi, chim chim churu, right? Uh, it's very easy to make that mistake. So ka'ari, good luck will rub off when I shake hands with you. But are your hands pierced, or are they somehow like a lion? You know, which is great if you're watching the Lion King. But if you're reading the Bible about Messiah. You know, then so yes, so there is some obscuration of, and again, sometimes it's purposeful, but sometimes you know the issue is in translation, you have the ability to, uh, uh, when you have a choice, go with the messianic way, or I mean, listen, people, every every Bible version, every translation has some kind of interpretive theological uh, input. Like for example, if we look at uh, Galatians six sixteen right, uh, the Israel of God. And you take a simple word. There is no more simple word in Greek than chi. What is the primary, by far, definition of chi? Every first-year Greek student knows chi is and, right? So why would the new, uh, uh, new international version... Do we have any people who use the NIV in this room, the new international version? Anybody? Okay, we have one who's NIV positive. All right, uh, but... <laughs> They translated even the Israel as if, as if uh, uh, the church is a new Israel, right? So every, when you have the opportunity as a translator, it is almost irresistible to, to flavor it with your theological presuppositions. And certainly the Masoretes would do that. So, so just re- one follow-on really quick. Do you think we found most of it? Do you think the scholarship, there's a lot left to do to uncover some of these um, obscurations, or do we pretty much know from I your perspective? I hope we do, because I can't afford to buy any more apparatuses. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, those things are not cheap. And, uh, Logos is charging me out, you know, every time. There's a 27th edition of the New Testament, the 28th edition. The only Nestle that I want to buy is a candy bar, okay? It's, I don't want to buy any more. Uh, so, but, yeah, I do, I do think we have, yeah. I mean, listen, every time a doctoral stu- how many doctoral students, how many theses, you know, whatever, everybody's looking for something new, right? So I, I, think, I think pretty much all the, the things that have been obscured have been uh, discovered, yes. What you do with them is, you know, is the question, right? All right. Uh, how did the uh, <coughs> Jewish scholars work in the passage from Job? I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth one day. Do they deal with that at all since it wasn't written to Israel? Yeah, you know what? The, um, 
I view that as a messianic prophecy. I do. Um, it is not included in the slides um, that you have. We won't discuss it um, because it is um, uh, it is a difficult passage to uh, argue one way or the other. It, it's hard. It's it's a difficult passage to say is a direct prophecy. Um, Jewish people do not deal with it at all um, because again, jo- for most Jewish scholars. Job is an interesting story. It's like talking about, you know, Genesis 3.15, which we'll make a big deal about, you know, with the proto-evangelion. Um, for, for most Jewish people, it's, this, it's, it's a fairy tale about uh, why uh, you should be afraid of snakes, right? right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not something to be wrestled with seriously. Uh, uh, we look at, uh, you know, uh, the birth of Cain, uh, which we'll talk about. Uh, they wouldn't. Ev- they they insert words into the text. Talk about obscuring. Okay, but our English Bibles do this as well um, because they couldn't possibly view this as a messianic idea. Like Eve, who walked in the garden with Adam and you know talked with God in the cool of the day, etc. Like they couldn't possibly have an idea of a messianic figure in mind. They only were first in the block, you know. Uh, and so she has a son. Uh, and she says, uh, uh, I, I have, a, I have a, 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 a son at, Yah- at Jehovah, okay? Uh, God. I have a, I have a son who is God, right? Thinking that a God-man has come forth, right? And there's not an English translation that you can read that actually doesn't insert words like, with, I have a man, I've, I've begotten a man with the help of God or with the help of Jehovah. Or, you know, different, whether they even put it in italics, you know, some of them don't even. Yeah. All right. It better be a good one. One, that's, one that's question over one. here. Yeah, it's the yeah, last one. Make it a good one. Because it's time for the break. Okay. All right. This is the first one. Um, <laughs> oh, we'll go back to the first one. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac was a beautiful picture of Messiah. Well, would you also add that Isaac's willingness to be obedient to Abraham was another picture? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I go into that in uh, shameless sales plug. Um, there, I have a CD on uh, on the on the Feast of Trumpets and exploring exploring the Jewish heart of the Feast of Trumpets, and we go into that particular issue um, and how yes, just as Abraham is the man of faith. Um, Isaac is as well, literally a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So, yes, so without question. All right. All right, great. We are going to take a break now, and we'll come back in uh, because I was not thinking correctly or adding my numbers together. So we'll come back at 3.15, and we'll start with uh, uh, Dr. Mark McGinnis with his session at that point. So let's take a break. Restrooms, there's snacks, sugar, caffeine, all the necessities of life.